Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Grindhouse Podcast, and I am being joined by one of my favorite guests, Director David Andrew L. Venable. How are you today, sir? I'm great. I am absolutely great. I'm extremely excited to talk about this specific uh, topic today. I, well, I, when we when I watched this movie, I couldn't think of a better person to s- review it, speak of it, talk about the themes than you, because I know that you're a big. Uh, is it is his uh, his name is Eggers? Yeah, Robert Eggers. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of his and. And I know that you had posted a bunch about The Lighthouse uh, well before I saw it. So yeah. I wanted you to invite you in. This is, um, this is our third podcast together, right? I think so. Well, technically, we did a two-parter, but that was one session. Yeah. Um, and I have to start with a uh, notification that it is melting in Los Angeles. I'm back home. And if you're following the news at all, we've had record number of heat. So... That hum you hear in the background, that is the AC. Normally, I would turn that off, but I wouldn't dare do that now. We would pass out in the middle of the podcast, and you just hear dead silence and, and dead bodies hitting the floor. So we're not going to do that. I got to say, it's it's extremely frustrating that uh, exactly when I moved to L.A. You hit the heat wave? Yeah, I get the heat wave. And it's also, you know, I keep looking at my uh, my hometown, and it is a good, like, 30 degrees cooler right. in, in Texas. Yeah, I know. It's fucked up. I, I realized that for the last few years, I haven't been in Los Angeles during August. Or at least, I, I haven't, I don't remember the la- last time I spent an entire August in Los Angeles. Um, last year, I was in Europe for two and a half weeks. The year before that, I was in Australia. The year before that, I was in Georgia. This year, I was in Georgia. So, Largely, I've missed this like oppressive heat waves that occurs. Yeah. Um, but I guess, and I thought that I had because I was coming back as I was driving across the country. I was noticing that that the heat wave had was looked like it was dying down. Yeah. And it was cool, like not cool. It was it was bearable for most of the last week that I've been here. And then this weekend hit, and all hell broke loose, and the the state uh, ignited. There's yeah. new fires going on, and and it's basically Armageddon. Was I mean, it's it's one of those things where um, you have people uh, doing those. Like, wasn't this one started by a, a gender reveal party? Yeah, which is uh, stupid. It's it's stupid in so many ways, but it's also especially stupid to be like, it is 106 degrees outside. Uh, let's start a literal like powder keg and like light it on fire and yeah. then just see what happens. Yeah, I don't understand gender reveal parties in general because yeah. I guess that's a relatively new thing. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about this. My fiance brought this up, but why are they having a party during COVID anyway? Oh, because they're stupid. Well, they're, obviously. Yeah. And then, and then I saw one of my friends, John Carl, post this on Twitter. He was saying how like they probably saw someone on like what's the, not Vine? What's the thing that people TikTok? Oh, uh, TikTok. Yeah. Yeah, like some clever TikTok gender reveal thing, and they decided to to, to try to emulate it. You know, this viral whatever. Yeah. For their 14 fans on Instagram, um, and they burned down in half. I think this morning when we looked, it was like 4,000 acres or something ridiculous like that. I mean, it, last night when I went to bed, it was 2,000 acres and it was uncontrolled. I think by this morning that doubled and it's still a non contained. Well, I'm sure, like, 
Skyler and uh, Chad and all of, all of their friends like are at least Kyle. You know, yeah, they're all like super stoked at least. That they're like, you know, check it check it out. Uh, it's it's a boy, um, but also fun. you know, we cause a major major natural disaster. Yeah, and that's always how it happens. It's the same thing with Australia. All those Australian fires. Yeah, it was started by some young people doing stupid shit not thinking yeah so but anyways anyway, we're yeah. basically recording this in the middle of armageddon yeah so that's why the ac is on it you know it's i i i if anybody has any problems with it just you know yeah you guys can come out here exactly please try please to, try to exist in this heat wave it's a eight. fan on us exactly um but the lighthouse the yes. lighthouse there is a there is a ton to unpack with this movie yeah um Robert Eggers, who was the director of The Witch, mm-hmm. which is an amazing film in and of its own right. And I didn't know what to expect with this film. I mean, I knew that it would probably be good because I respect his work from The Witch. And I'd seen your talking points about it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have any real understanding of the plot or what to expect story-wise. I don't even know if I'd ever even seen a trailer. I knew uh, Willem Dafoe was in it. And I knew that um, Pattinson. Patterson was in it. But beyond that, I didn't have any, any context. What was your experience watching this movie the first time? And what was your come away from it? What was your initial come away? So um, I first, you know, I, I was following Egger's career a little bit um, prior uh, because I, I was a fan of The Witch. And then the reason I, I, I had heard about, you know, the making of this movie and I had heard about, um, you know, Pattinson was in an interview and he was talking about how... Uh, uh, he had a almost like came to blows with Eggers because you know he was like you. I feel like you're just spraying me with a hose, and Eggers responded like that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I was following it. I, I heard that they were going to be filming it in black and white, and I was like, oh, he's going to do a great job with that. Um, but um, the first time I actually saw anything about it is so I had shot my short film, which is uh, an Academy ratio and is in black and white. Um, uh, you know, high contrast black and white as well. And um, some crew members who had worked on my short film uh, forwarded me the trailer and they were like, hey, uh, did you make this? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's that's really funny and really flattering. And then I watched it and was, I watched the trailer and was like, oh God, this might actually be a problem. Right, right, um, just because of the similarities? Yeah, I mean... The aesthetic at least? Yeah, there's there's aesthetic similarities, but it's also, you know, my, my short film is, is also about, you know, two people... Uh, trapped in a, a very confined environment and um, uh, so I was like well people are definitely going to think that I drew some inspiration from here but um, beyond that you know I was just excited you know it watching that trailer it was it's everything I like in a movie it's um, it's kind of minimalist storytelling it's uh, uh, kind of performance based but it's also um, visually stunning um, without sacrificing content right um, and so, you know, when I first watched it, I initially had difficulty. I, it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit, this may be a strange comparison, but when you first start watching, like, The Wire, okay. um, and, like, the language is something that you initially have trouble picking mm-hmm. up on. Yep. Um, and then eventually you kind of, I guess you could say, like, learn the language. Yeah, there's a, I, I, there, I think there's an actual term for it. I remember this being... I, I came across this phrase, which is escaping me now, but um, 
in conversations about rap music yeah and hardcore and metal and any any sort of music that where the lyrics are manipulated right they're not sung traditionally clean right hip hop is you know the, one of the main examples of that probably the most well known but like even like you know what the cookie monster voice in hardcore and yeah to the to someone who's brand new to it it just sounds like noise yep it sounds uh, like a cacophony but the longer you listen to it your brain does adjust you, there's We've all seen those sort of memes online where, like, you know, the letters, there's like a paragraph, but all the letters within the word yeah, are you, rearranged. Yeah, if you can read this, then you are smart or whatever. Right, but so, we, you know, we can all read it because exactly. it's the way our brain works. We don't, yeah. we don't actually digest full words. We Our body fills in a lot of gaps. Yeah, it's like the first and last letter, and then your brain kind of, like, goes through the list of possibilities and just, yeah. It's kind of like your autocorrect, but way better. Yes. Because I've never, ever used the word ducking in a sentence ever. No, I... No, I haven't either, but apparently my autocorrect thinks I use it on a daily basis. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so it was something where it took me a, a second to kind of grow accustomed to the language. But once I did, um, it just, you know, blew me out of the water. I mean, it's both of these actors in it um, are great actors uh, either way. You know, it's, it's something that I, I think is one of the great tragedies about... Um, Pattinson's career is that people associate him with one specific thing, that being Twilight, but he has been putting in amazing performance after amazing performance in recent years. Yeah, I don't know why he gets so stuck with that and why there seems to be so much anger about those movies because yeah. a lot of really talented actors start with very silly movies. I mean, I mean that's pretty common. Kristen Stewart got the same thing, and she, again, like, she has a very specific style of acting. Um, but it's it's good. Like, you know, she can put in a, a heartfelt performance. Right. Um, but again, people just associate her with those films, which is a shame, again, because she's really been putting in the work since then. Um, but, uh, yeah, Pattinson, is, he's a great actor. If you don't believe it yet, watch both The Lighthouse and Good Time. Good Time is incredible. Okay, I haven't seen Good Time yet. You, you I think, would really enjoy it. Um, but... Um, yeah, he, he's great, and Willem Dafoe is one of my favorite actors. I don't think I've ever seen a performance of Willem Dafoe that I've been disappointed by. Um, right. I think that might be a little bit of why Patterson and uh, Stewart got... Uh, they've really struggled to step out of the shadow of Twilight because their performances are not good in those movies. No, and it's... it's so, like, it's not just that they were in a bad movie... It's that they were in a bad movie and they weren't good in the bad movie. Right. And for whatever and, – and so because it was such a massive phenomenon, that's what they get, get kind of stuck with. But you know what? I mean, I guess this is a little bit different, but Keanu Reeves wasn't good in Dracula. No, he's not. And he, that's – But, you know, he got better. Yeah, and I, I would say less. A great, um, <laughs> a great, a great example um, of that same kind of actor is, you know, I, I remember watching Brad Pitt in a Tales from the Crypt episode. It was one of his first <laughs> things that he did. And that, I have to find that now. It's so bad. Like, it's his performance is just abysmal. Right. Um, but uh, it's it's almost like um, the uh, the pretty face syndrome, I guess you could say, where people just yeah. like make that assumption that like they can't act. Um, but you know, shortly thereafter, you know, Pitt honed his skill. He, he practice and practice and practice and he uh shortly thereafter put in his performance in 12 monkeys which is just phenomenal um and, and you have to especially with a movie like the lighthouse you have to be your chops have to be there yeah because it it's not a movie that that for as aesthetically pleasing as this movie is it is not a movie that needs a handsome lead no and in fact 
that's one thing I think is really interesting is that both of these actors, you know, um, it's one thing I really enjoy about Pattinson and it's something that I really enjoy about his performance here is that he leans into the grimy kind of, you know, disheveled thing in such a way that like, you can't really watch that movie and go like, oh yeah, that, guy, that guy's a, a, right. a, a model for sure. I mean, you know, he's still a good looking guy, but it's, he doesn't um, look, he doesn't stand out no. in that way. He looks very ordinary. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the performances in it are just are just remarkable. And um, I walked out of the theater uh, going, oh, well, this is my favorite movie of the year. And, and, you know, 2019 had Parasite and The Lighthouse. And uh, I would say that Parasite is probably a um, uh, better made film. Uh, yeah, I or at least, that. Or at least... Um, a more important when it comes down to a subject matter and and also it's definitely more important when it comes down to the fact that it's the first foreign film to sweep the Os- Oscars and right like, that's a, that's extremely important but um, I would say that I the lighthouse is my favorite movie of the year you know well it's it does it it does um and we can get into we can sort of break down why it gets to this point but I felt like it is such a satisfyingly enjoyable movie that you almost forget about some of its art houseness. Oh yeah, and I and I like weird art house movies, but you know, like some you watch them once, maybe you watch them twice, maybe. But there are kind of movies that aren't um, they don't satisfy that sort of popcorn enjoyability, right? But this is a film that, for whatever reason, doesn't feel like I couldn't rewatch it many times. Well, and and one thing, you know, I had a conversation with my friend, and he was like, um, "Hey, I, I hope you're not, you know, frustrated with me, but I, I." thought it was hilarious and i was like oh no that's it's a funny movie like it's yeah. it's written to be funny it's not you know you weren't reading it the wrong way it is written to be funny that's also you know people making the quote-unquote brilliant observation that there's homoerotic uh uh tension and i'm like yeah it's yeah, that's it's, part of the it's, movie it's not even that subtle no it's really not like there's a there's a point in the movie you know no spoiler alert somewhat um i think six, how long has the movie been out it's been over out over a year it's been out over a year yeah you should yeah. have seen it right now spoilers um, but go watch it um there's a there's a, mo- a point in the movie where you know they have been uh on the island for some in you know uh vague ambiguous amount of time and they're starting to kind of lose it a little bit and they uh are seen slow dancing together you know and and they kind of almost go in for a kiss and then it turns into a fist fight um right and uh, so again, you know, there are these there are these overtones that I think are just there, and I think that's one reason that it, it's so enjoyable, like that humor that's that's written into the screenplay. But again, you have to learn that language to be able to pick right. up on it. Um, I, I watched it a second time in theaters, and um, it really was like I, I knew the language completely, so it was entirely enjoyable. Um, I, and I got to say, you know, for an art house film. Um, there's there's a lot of farting, you know. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> right, uh, you know, and it's not even in a in a blue humor. It's it's like a uh, Ozu, the uh, uh, famous uh, director Ozu. Like he um, has a lot of farting in his movies, but he's still considered one of the greatest art house filmmakers of all time. Well, because it it it, it defines it's in an odd way. It defines a character. Yeah. In a in a very um, easy distilled action that occurs you know everything you need to know about William Defoe's character based on just a handful of his mannerisms yeah um I think we should dovetail I mean there's such such a lot to unpack in this movie but I think we should dovetail into themes 
Yeah. Because uh, this is not a traditional narrative like you might expect. Yeah. And we've already touched on one of the themes of sort of homoeroticism, and I think there's more complexity to that in terms of uh, companionship. Yeah. And and uh, power dynamic. Male toxic well. power dynamic for sure. I'm going to get into that male toxicity. So. I guess where should we start? Is there's like several layers to this story, uh, and any one of them is the right one. I guess what would okay. Let's start with this. What was as you were watching it? What did you feel was the main point of Eggers or the main sort of uh, overarching theme of this story? Um, I think you know it's it's one of my favorite themes in in films and, and one of my favorite. Um, uh, overall concepts that I love seeing discussed. It's, it's the idea of, of um, uh, the legitimacy of one's reality in a situation where their mind has been put to a stressful situation. Like uh, uh, I, I would say like Barton Fink is a good example of that. Uh-huh. Or um, uh, you know, it, even, you know, it's, it's a big reason why, you know, even in, in my personal and my short film, uh, the body, like, that was a big theme was that whole idea of is a, is a person's reality actually um, happening universal. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that, you know um, it has so many themes, but I, I personally, something that attracts me a lot to art in general is, um, is tone and um, the emotions conveyed. And I think that this could be viewed entirely as a tone piece. It's not entirely a tone. piece, Right. But I think that you could definitely look at it as, as a masterful uh, conveying of dread and and madness and um, and anxiety and tension. Um, but you know, it, it deals with. Um, uh, there's a lot of reference to mythology yep. throughout the whole thing, and I think that that is is uh, is fascinating because you know, it it deals with again tying into those concepts of of universality that's not a term uh, universally applicable concepts like uh like a uh there's a lot of references to the myth of prometheus and, right. and poseidon so, yeah and with uh with prometheus it's it's that concept of um hubris and that concept of of uh uh stubborn willingness to to um to really pursue things that may wind up in your own uh, demise. And I think that um, I'm kind of rambling a bit here, but it's just, it's a hard movie to pin down in its themes. Well, because the themes exist on a micro level as well as a macro level. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think every point that you made is very relevant. I mean, it is certainly on its most intimate level, a story of dread and isolation yeah. and, and, um, companionship in a lot of ways uh it, it, when you force to it, it, there's even you know it kind of reminded me in some ways of the shining yeah even in, in fact there's a reference to the shining where william defoe's character is is um chasing robert patterson with an axe and they, yeah. they cut to it in profile and he even has a limp which is i've not seen it mentioned anywhere but it's clearly a direct reference to the shining in jack torrance yeah. um so those themes of isolation that you see like in a lot of Stephen King novels are there. Yeah. For me, in the state that I was in when I was watching it, I could not shake that it seemed to be 
on a macro level referencing humanity's relationship with nature slash God. Yeah. So like, and I actually I found that the the references to Greek mythology really strengthened that perspective. Yeah. So especially me, because that that myth of Prometheus is is almost a contentious relationship with right, God. right. You know the the myth of Prometheus is that Prometheus in his hubris took fire from the gods and he gave it to people on earth, right? Yeah. Uh, another sort of literary character that you might be familiar with that did something very similar was the Lucifer. Yeah. Right? Lucifer takes knowledge from God and gives it to earth. Um, we've seen this play out in different mythologies over time, um, which then got me thinking, especially when you look at Willem Dafoe, he represents like the old gods. Yeah. He represents something primal. And maybe in a lot of ways, he also just generally represents the the one you know the one god theory, right? Yeah. Whereas Patterson to me represented more society. Yeah. And one of the things that I took away from this was this idea that William Defoe's character represents a school of thought wherein there was a god and or gods, right? And they gave us rules, and we are to follow said rules, and then that is our that is the whole of our existence, right? To do as the gods please. Yeah. Whereas Patterson represents sort of a post Nietzsche society, wherein he represents the existential dread of coming to the realization that his life solely exists to please the gods. Right. Right. And that there is no end in sight. And that this is all that there is to his life. And as such, he essentially and literally kills God. Yeah. Right. And then tries to ascend as the new God. And for his hubris, he's cast out and eaten by seagulls. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact is, is that um, Defoe is literally the keeper of the light and he refuses to allow uh, uh, Pattinson to actually um, even cast even, eyes on. Yeah. It. Even cast eyes on it. And, and he. Uh, instead, you know, um, puts Pattinson in a very ser- uh, a, a position of servitude and an absolute servitude. Um, and I mean, it's something that you know I've always had the view of of God as almost a um, an abusive relationship, you know. Yeah. And and you know the fact that we as a people, you know, I, I've often even said that even if, it, if God exists, I, I reject him entirely because it is truly an, an abusive relationship. You know, the fact that it's, I will put you through torture throughout your entire life and demand that you worship me regardless. Well, um, and I think, I think even if you stripped away like a moral judgment on it, I think what you could, because, because some people willfully and, and um, happily grant servitude right yeah i think i think to me and there's a there's a scene that really i mean really nails on the head because i I don't for as many layers as this movie has i don't think it's particularly uh obtuse yeah you know i think it's putting itself out there for you to understand there's a scene where uh robert after an exchange after the axe exchange i think yeah um Robert Patterson puts Willem Dafoe in a in a dog leash because Willem Dafoe has called him dog this whole time. Yeah, and and he he essentially walks him back from this little side house to the lighthouse. And I mean, if that's not an obvious nail on the head that this is about power dynamics and yeah. dominance and submissives and 
And you could look at, I mean, you could certainly look at a relationship with a higher consciousness as abusive from a certain perspective. But I think in every perspective, it's dominant and submissive. Well, we we I, either willfully or forcefully are put into a submissive servitude type relationship with some form of higher being. Yeah. Right. And and again, depending on your perspective, you either um, joyfully accept this or it's torturous. Right. I think certainly from the perspective of Robert Patterson's character. And again, if he represents society for largely, it ends up being torturous. Well, and I think that, you know, there's a there's some really good um, uh, hitting that home, that, like nailing that point home where um, basically throughout the entire movie, Willem Dafoe is gaslighting uh, is, is gaslighting Pattinson. Like it's it's truly uh, abusive in that sense, you know. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's that moment exactly where Willem Dafoe is seen chasing him with an axe. Um, and then almost immediately thereafter, Willem Dafoe spins it as, you know, you're losing it. You just chased me with an axe. Right, right. Um, and the thing is, though, is that w- what I love about the movie is that it is ambiguous to where you don't know um, if what you're watching is, is real. And um, and that actually works because it almost makes it feel like you're being gaslighted as, as an audience member. You know, like if, if you, you know, he's an unreliable narrator throughout we already know that it's been established that um, while he doesn't have necessarily murderous intent, Pattinson has the capability to allow a person to die right? Um, and basically take their identity. And so um, he has sort of a nefarious background. And I think that that is, it, it's, it's fascinating because again, it's about these, power dynamics but you don't really know who's in control here right you can even make the argument i've seen it uh, written in a few different places that even the mermaid sort of um sub story might have been something planted by willem dafoe's character yeah that um that you know the the little figurine that he that patterson finds in his mattress and the story and a lot of his delusion is being fed to him in some way by willem dafoe's character yeah and so you could certainly see that there are many relationships that exist within this dynamic, both on a spiritual level, but also on a, uh, you know, human level. Yeah. Wherein one, the more domineering person in the relationship sort of is, is it's like the old adage of like those who win the war control the history. Yeah. It's very similar. Like those who are in dominant positions create the reality of which we live in. Yeah. And if you want to take it to its most macro level, you could say that like God or gods have created the fabric of our reality by which we exist. And is that gaslighting in some way? Yeah. Right. If we're told that we're subservient, but are we really? We're told that there are certain rules, but are there really? What, what happens if we don't follow them? Right. These are all themes that it explores. But then on a more macro level, micro level, rather, how many people are in relationships where their partner or their parents or their friends um, we, we talked about this off air before we got on, like the, the sort of dynamic that exists now wherein gaslighting and the, and the control and the creation of a reality is being driven by emotion and mobs yeah, and not necessarily rooted in any sort of reality or a open communication. It's just a matter of like who can assert dominance over the other and control the narrative by which, by which justifies their actions. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, there's, there's another good example of this where uh, throughout the whole movie, 
um, at least for the first, uh, maybe even into the second act, um, Pattinson is denying drinks from from yeah. Defoe. Um, Defoe keeps offering him a drink at, at dinner, and you know he's saying it's it's impolite for you to uh, turn it down. Which I have to say, I actually I really like that because as a person who's straight edge, um, you've been in that position. I've been in that times, position yeah. so many times where like. I'll, I'll literally just say, you know, uh, no, I'm, I'm good. And the person just responds like, well, that's really rude of you. Um, right, right, which but, is weird. But Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's very strange. But anyway, um, uh, it's something that, you know, he's, he's trying to get him to have a drink with him all the way throughout. And then uh, finally he's, you know, the two of them give in and just, he, they basically, it's just a, a drunken hedonistic um, uh, embrace of, of uh drinking literally anything at one point they're drinking um uh the lantern fuel right um but yeah that isn't like we have provisions and then they go uh find the provisions and it's just alcohol right right. Um, but anyway uh at the very end we see that um essentially defoe the entire time has been marking that as a reason that Pattinson shouldn't get paid for his job right um because he drank on the job so it was literally a kind of entrapment where it's you know um uh I will encourage you to drink with me and then use that against you right um and it it's it's interesting to use that as a as a metaphor for um uh for relationship dynamics because it is something that you know um happens quite often in abusive relationships where it's you know i'll say it's fine for you to do something and then hold it against you for the rest of your life right um and uh you know it's there's a there's a term that um was used in my in my film analysis class and in a couple of my you know i had a gender and sexuality and horror class that was great um and we were talking about homosocial dynamics and you know um that just means you know uh specifically the man-man dynamic and, you know, even meaning friendships and, and things along those lines and how um, they have this uh, strange kind of tension at times. Right. And, you know, this movie really nails that home where in that scene that I mentioned earlier where they go in for, you know, a kiss and then it turns into this, you know, I cannot allow myself to to be not masculine for even a moment right so they start fighting and you know you mentioned earlier uh, the theme of toxic masculinity that is rife throughout absolutely um and and it is you know a a kind of one-upmanship and and it's so funny it it kind of reminds me of um uh love the movie hate the fans uh fight club okay yeah um where you know it's a movie that talks about the idea of being a real man and there's a level of domesticity that is indicative of a romantic relationship all the way throughout. A hundred percent. I always think about the scene where... I mean, I mean, Tyler Durden is a fantasy. Yeah. In every sense of the term. Not just in a uh, um, idling way, but like it is a fantasy for our narrator. He is the epitome of beauty yeah. in every fashion. Well, and there's, there's even, you know, extremely overt scenes where, um, or I guess not quite overt, rather, uh, where, you know... Jordan is straightening the protagonist's tie. You know, it's right. it's a very you know, honey, I'm going off to work sort of thing, because even in, in that scene, Jordan's wearing a robe, 
um, in the kitchen, you know, making them breakfast, you know, there's, right, right. there's a lot of that there. And I think that, you know, both of these films kind of deal with those themes in a very interesting way because it is basically saying that this denial of comfort with, uh, with another man uh, leads to literal acts of violence, you know? Well, and not only that, um, it felt like that scene was was a true moment of 100% giving in. Yeah. Because if you view every step leading up to that point as being a sort of a calculated measure that Willem Dafoe uses to get to this point, and, and slowly but surely, Patterson's character starts to give in. Yeah. He starts to buy in. Yeah. Right? But in the moment where he would fully go in, in the moment where he would give, in some ways, I guess you could look at it as give away his identity to this other force, it's the moment that he pushes back and rejects it. Yeah. And then, and then as is typical with men, like they, with, without a clear way to express themselves, they turn to, to roughhousing. Yeah. You know? Which is just as intimate in many ways as an embrace. Yeah, but but from a very twisted perspective, and and again, what you see from that moment onward is the dissolution of their partnership. Yeah, as slowly as it as it as they bonded, you see the breakaway moment. It's like it's in that pivotal pivotal moment that a decision has to be made to go all in and accept the lighthouse life, so to speak, or to break away. And and then you see what that leads to. There is only really one conclusion: is that one of them has to die. Yeah. And it and it and because Patterson is the younger sort of um, representation of a new way of thinking, the old life dies. Well, and and I think that you know, if you if you watch um, throughout throughout the movie, Defoe is definitely the one who wants a domestic sort of life with him right. i mean the offense that he takes at at Pattinson saying he hates his cooking is is straight up a domestic squabble 100 um, percent. and you can tell how emotionally he is yeah you don't like me cooking it's just it's straight up you know he's crushed right um i know you like my lobster you know it's uh it's uh it, it's straight up you know a, a partner finding out that you're basically humoring them when they cook in the kitchen right 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 um and uh it's, it is interesting when you look at it through the relationship dynamics thing, but I, I definitely think that I, I really like your point about um, the different approaches to, you know, the old gods and the new, that kind of thing, or at least um, uh, the adherence to, to dogma versus, right. the, versus the rebelling against it, or at least, you know, progressing further. Um, because again, you know, the idea of, of holiness tied to the older generations, you know, Defoe is the only one allowed to be in the lighthouse. Right. He's the only one allowed to see the light. Um, and um, it is almost like the gods punish him for rebelling against them. Um, I mean, they straight up do, you know, the right. way the movie ends. I mean, is, look, he gives them a very clear edict, don't kill the seabirds. Yeah. And that's the one fucking, the first fucking thing he does is kill yeah. the seabird and not just kill it, he violently and and excessively destroys it, and and you could look at if you're gonna look at it from the lens of gods and society, like you could look at it like this is the way society treats. I'm um, doing air quotes now. God's creatures, right? Yeah. The earth, 
representative of the earth, right? Don't fuck with the earth. Don't fuck with the sea. Don't fuck with Mother Nature. That's like the one thing you can't do. Yeah. Follow my rules and don't mess with life. And as is typical for, for young blood, we destroy as we go um, so that we may recreate in theory, right? That scene is so... It, it's, it, it goes from being funny to over the top to funny at being how over the top it is. It reminds me of that scene in The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob steps on the rakes and it goes on for like two minutes. Right. Um, gets uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. It's uncom- it, Again, it's that, you know, haha. And then, okay, that's enough. And then, okay, it's funny again. Well, um, and then the other thing is also like the seabird only has one eye. Yeah. Which is always to me, I mean, I know, I know you're sort of crossing the mythologies, which I think it does, this film does very um, liberally, but Odin. Yeah. Right? Odin. Um, I, I don't, I'm sure there are other gods that are one eyed or mythology stories in that nature. Well, and Odin took the form of bird, you know. Yeah, so. there you go. Um, so, so, like, you could see where, again, it's this destruction of old ways of life. Yeah. For the path of a new way of life. Um, I'd be really curious as to your take on the ending of it. And, like, ultimately, what is this movie saying? In, in, either in the macro or micro sense of like you would think especially given sort of today's um, social movements and politics that you would want Patterson who starts off as the submissive in the story he's being gaslit he's being manipulated and controlled you would want a hero's end for him yeah and maybe you get it in the traditional like tragedy sense but not in the way that we're used to there's no there's no celebration in the end for his turning the tables on his oppressor. Well, so um, it, I got to say, it reminds me, this, this movie reminds me a little bit of, of um, another multi-layered metaphor film. Um, but to me, it's more successful. Uh, Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Yep, yep. Um, because both of, those mov- both of these movies have uh, multiple meanings that are all equally valid. And all purposeful, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, and they're also highly referential. Um, I mean, Mother makes direct reference to uh, Louis Bunuel's um, uh, exterminating angel, the idea of not being able to leave your home. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, it also makes explicit reference at times to, to Berkman, whereas this, you know, makes specific reference to um, makes specific reference to the Universal Monsters movie. We, we talked earlier about how they use the exact film stock that right. they use that, that kind of like, I think it's like a, a silver dips kind of uh, film stock. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, beyond that they're making references to mythologies and making references to all of these things. Um, but this, this movie is more successful because it does it without falling into being solely referential and, right. and, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, up its own ass. I liked Mother, but it really is, you know, Ar- Aronofsky has a problem with that. Well, that's that, that's one of those films that's art house, but I mean, I might, well, I'm sure I'll watch it more than once, but yeah. I don't have a desire to watch it. I didn't get a great deal of entertainment out of it. Well, it's whereas, actually antagonistic to the right. audience at times. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, that's something that, is a big difference between the two is that Eggers is such a successful uh, uh, filmmaker and, and storyteller because he's able to have these themes and still have a central story. Right. Um, but uh, a- anyway, I think that with that ending, it's, it, it works in so many ways because again, it goes back to that central idea of, is this real or is it not, you know, is Pattinson 
uh, did he end up in that situation because he fell down the, the uh, stairs, crawled out to the rocks, and simply essentially could go no further and is just picked alive by birds? Is he being punished by the gods? Is he being punished by nature because of his attack? But again, you know, the whole uh, don't attack a seabird thing is also... Um, the whole thing is is uh, referencing, you know, just traditional sea uh, uh, lighthouse keeper um, uh, naval guy from that era mythology, you know. Right. And and again, they do a really good job of, of tackling those things too, you know, from the idea of, of uh, mermaids, which was originated by you know um, by uh, fishermen and and, uh, and naval officers and things along those lines, um, and, and the fact that you know his his dialogue is based upon journal entries from lighthouse keepers from that era. Right. Um, but it's, it's also equally valid that that end is, is somewhat imagined, you know? And I, and I think that it's, it's something that, um, has always bothered me about certain conversations regarding, um, ambiguous films where people will try to say, what is the answer here? Right. And, um, there's not one, you know, it, it kind of reminds me in a way, you know, not to tie it again to, to my own film, but you know, when I, when I made the body, someone asked me what the ending meant and they were like, does it, does it mean this? And I'm like, yeah, possibly that's, that's one of the things that I thought of it meaning. And then they were like, okay, well, does this happen? And I was like, that's another thing that I thought might happen. Well, I think, I think people struggle without having, when, when, when there seems to be an absence of universal truth. Yeah. And I think that this movie's not making... I mean, if it's making a moral judgment, uh, to me, again, this is just from my perspective, when, when um, Patterson overcomes his oppressor, yeah. he doesn't escape. He doesn't aim to escape. He doesn't uh, you know, try to signal for another ship or something. He doesn't try to stack up on... None of that. He, his motivation is to ascend and take a look at the, the light from the lighthouse. Yeah. And in some ways, you could look at that as essentially co-opting in a different way the very same nature as your oppressor, right? We see this all the time where people who think they're on the side of righteousness become just as bad as the people that they're aiming to bring down. Um, you can see it in patterns of abuse as well. People yeah. who were abused in the past. Then go on to abuse others, yeah. dominate others. I mean, look um, at, a, you know, for one thing, you know, serial killers, most of them have been abused, in, or a right. lot of them, rather, have been abused in some way, shape, or form in their past. And it, you know, this, this it, it's also, you know, Pattinson, um, almost like these cycles of abuse, falling victim even when he wins, you know? Right. Um, uh, where you know you could say I'm I'm moving past this this uh, abusive moment, but in fact that person in a sense wins because you are forever changed either way. Um, so he's he's succumbed to madness, um, which was the intent of Defoe in a, in a way uh, to drive him mad. He succumbs to it even though he quote unquote wins. Right. Um, and so it's what? and he seems to give up hope. Oh yeah, for sure. But, like, like it seems like he's completely given in. To the fact that there is nothing beyond this except yeah. to go look at that light, yeah. Except to just see what it is, which is probably it could be whatever, right? Yeah. It's the it's the gold light from Tarantino's briefcase. It's uh, God. It's whatever. Yeah. It's a light. Maybe it's just a big giant light bulb that's warm. Yeah. You know, but 
again, the answer is not the point. The answer is not the point. And also, I think that what happens with Patterson's sort of trajectory, his character's sort of arc, is that he 100% gives in to nihilism. Oh, yeah. And there's, I, I was on one of my drive, I think my, on my drive to Georgia, I was listening to a series of um, YouTube videos that sort of broke down philosophy and it does skew a little libertarian, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But yeah. they're talking about Nietzsche. I'm a, and, I'm a defender. I, I will, I, before, well, we, before we go into this, <laughs> um, I, uh, I have a big problem with. There is this there is this uh, view of, of existential philosophers and definitely Nietzsche in particular, um, where it's uh, basically viewed as uh, belonging to youthful adolescence and self reflection that is associated with adolescence. Sure, which is is extremely frustrating to me because at what point in your life should you stop um, reflecting on your existence? Like, why is that? Well, not only that, but I think it's been co-opted by so many right-wing and, right. and, and capitalistic type people that people just sort of they don't take they don't look or at least with the, Nietzsche, you know, especially with Nietzsche, yeah. yeah, and and they don't look at the sort of you know some of it may not be useful and some of it might be problematic and some of it might be great, yeah, right, like like look at the words and not necessarily the defined um, narratives around it, right, which again kind of goes to themes in this movie, but in. In uh, prior to Nietzsche, in particular, there was what's sort of referred to as the true world theory. Yeah, that this world is not real, yeah. or at least it's not important, and the real true world is heaven or where or nirvana, whatever it is, right? Maybe around the time of psychoanalysis and Nietzsche and um, the really the technological boom of the 1900s, you saw a shift away from that. Even people who consider themselves Christians or religious, the vast majority of people don't live their life by any sort of religious edict. Yeah. It's very secular in almost every aspect, except for when it's convenient. And what you what you have is you had the moment where, where Nietzsche said that God is dead. Right. And, and essentially, we have killed him. We have killed him and that we've moved on. That yeah. We no longer need that. And that the next step is nihilism, right? But see, sorry to cut you off. No, okay. Um, that's that's something that I've always again. It's there are several misconceptions when it comes to Nietzsche. One of them is he's an anti-Semite. No, was right. not. Uh, his sister and her husband were, and when he had his stroke, they took his work, edited it, and essentially sold it to the rising uh, anti-Semitic movement in Germany. Right. Um, uh, another one is that he's a nihilist. Nope. He he's actually not. was vehemently anti-nihilist. Right. Because there's a third um, step after nihilism that you were supposed to get to. Yeah. The, the the nihilism aspect is a stepping stone. Yeah. And I think there are inherent dangers of staying in nihilism. And for me, applying that to the lighthouse, I feel like that's one of the themes that you could derive from it, which is that that giving up of hope ultimately is what un, is is Patterson's undoing. Yeah. Because um, in in Nietzsche's sort of writing, the third step is meant to be following your true will. The yeah. power of will, right? What your goal is the Ubermensch, you know, the idea of of a, a being who is so um, uh, intellectually, but also you know, uh, spiritually, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, superior. The, right. I, the idea of being uh, true to um, ideology, I guess you could say, um, or your own ideology, you know, and I, I think that. Yeah, your own path, your own yeah. will, your own value system. Right. But the idea behind it is that initially 
you you like a child who outgrows their parent, right? Or um, in this instance, a a ward who who outlives the usefulness of their keeper, right? You realize that the the spiritual beliefs of your youth don't fit you any longer, right? Which is then followed by a sense of nihilism, which I get I get why it's associated with youth because in theory, I guess at some point you're supposed to grow beyond that. Yeah, um, and maybe you are, but not in the way that people traditionally think. But you should then realize that the values that were given upon you don't have any universal truth to them. Yeah, that that meaning is for you to grant, not to receive. Right. Um, but if you stay in that spot and you don't actually give meaning to life, if you don't find what you're will or your value system or your whatever your particular meaning is your philosophy your outlook on life if you don't implement it it will lead to destruction and to me when i see this movie what patterson does is he escapes his shackles and and in fact he before he escapes them by killing defoe he he does a complete power shift right complete power reversal um but then he succumbs to the very thing that drove you could argue that Defoe is mad. Oh, right? I, I definitely would. Yeah, I mean, he, he does exact his, – his motivation seeks to just simply replace him rather than – you know, he, he replaces him at, him at the head of the table, but it doesn't change the table. Yeah. If instead he had chosen a different path of creating his own values separate of that and not fall for the same obsessions that Defoe had, his ending might have been different. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know – Nietzsche warned against the uh, nihilistic outlook of, of emptiness, um, but also, you know, there was a, there was an actual, you know, there was a political movement of, of nihilists. I, I believe it was in Russia, mm-hmm. who um, kind of stood for tearing down everything because nothing that came before it, no ideology that came before it, was was meaningful. Um, and, and again, it's kind of you know tied to what you're talking about where it's that so that you can then build from the ashes, you know? Sure. And, and so, um, you know, we were talking before we started recording about, um, about nihilism. And I was saying, you know, for lack of a, there's, there's no good way to say this without making me sound like a pretentious ass, but I'm, I'm, the quicker we're canceled, the better we can live our lives. Well, I, I, so there's uh, freedom in it. Yes. Um, but I, I consider myself, you know, an existential nihilist, and I say that meaning and uh, entirely that, you know, not that life is inherently hopeless, though there are certain times where I feel like that, but rather that if life is meaningless, then there is a freedom to it. You know, um, if previous moral and and philosophical and ideological outlooks are are not just wrong, but you know, completely meaningless, then that allows me to define my own, you know? Um, exactly. And, and it's, it's always fascinating to me when it, whenever I talk to someone about this, specifically, you know, a, a white American Christian, um, they always go to, well, what's to stop you from just going out and killing people? Well, I'm not a fucking sociopath, you know? Right. And also like th- there is an inherent, I think you see this in most beings. There's an inherent driv- drive that's, motivated by love and compassion yeah so when you look at babies like you've always here's that example about you know babies don't understand racism for example they yeah. don't understand um they don't even understand 
sharing and preference. Yeah. It's not until you introduce ideas like your favorite color, your favorite this, your favorite that, then there becomes a sense of ownership that develops in their young brains. Otherwise, right. things are just things. They don't own. They don't belong to them, nor do they belong to others. Right? Yeah. Maybe if you introduced food, that would sort of drive up like a, a an animalistic instinct. But for the most part, it just doesn't exist. Right. That is a learned behavior that happens over time. Right. And I think that you know the argument that I would make on a philosophical level is that that's the case with literally everything. You know, um, uh, morality is relative in the sense that you know um, we've decided that certain things. Uh, and again, you know, on a on a basic uh, human level, you know, again, when people say things like, why don't you go out and murder? Well, because it's not beneficial to the species, and I have been biologically programmed to view that that way, so why would I go out and, and negatively impact? Right. Uh, but anyway. Um, well, and one more thing to that also, it's if you're driven by a belief that life is meaningless except for the meaning that you give to it. Yeah. For lack of a better phrasing, right? If you believe that everyone has the freedom and the ability to create their own reality, then you should be driven not by any sort of urge to take that away from someone. Right. Which is what you would be doing if you murdered them, right? You would be actively taking away something that you believe in in someone else for no real material gain. Right. And and I think that, um, you know, when it comes down to that, that nihilistic output, again – or outlook rather again it's it's always fascinating to me that the people who seem to basically they're implying that if they didn't believe in god and specifically a christian god a judeo-christian god um that they would just be out there doing just horrific acts they would be yeah they would be the people who say that would be because they do terrible shit anyway yeah the people who say stuff like that don't in my experience for whatever that is worth don't actually live their life by the very scripture and philosophies that they proclaim to believe in so frequently that they are willing to condemn other people. So I think you got to take them at face value. I think that they don't have a moral compass. Yeah. And if not for the fear of hell, they would do atrocities. Yeah, it kind of it reminds me of, um, of a, a Patton Oswalt bit where he's talking about um, uh, how he's not necessarily... Uh, anti-theistic if largely because if it makes you a more decent person then what's the harm sure um you know he's like if, if you believe that you know giant shit piranhas will devour you if you don't um uh be nice to your fellow man then you know what's the harm there because at least you're being nice to your fellow man yeah and, uh, and there's lots of ways you know there's, there's there's lots of ways to sort of define things that's what's cool about life right that's what's cool about art and and that's why the coolest art reflects that in life that it is in some ways up to your interpretation. Yeah. You know, it's not so clear cut. And that's why movies like this resonate, I think, for a lot of people because it allows you it allows you to remember that about life as well. Yeah. And and again, I think that, you know, it's that's a really good way to kind of um, tie in the ambiguity that I was talking about earlier about how I don't like defining it and my philosophical outlook, you know, and how those two things are interconnected, how um, that ambiguity is is just kind of roll like lay back and enjoy it. Oh, that sounds horrible. That's not what I meant, but y you know what I mean, though. Yes, if, if, I you just, if you just kind of um, allow yourself to embrace the ambiguity, embrace the um, 
the pure feeling of it, you know, the, the tone piece that I mentioned earlier, then it becomes a, a different kind of enjoyment. And that, ex again, extends to a philosophical point. If you allow yourself to enjoy the ambiguity, the meaninglessness of life, it kind of allows you to just enjoy it for what it is. Well, you could, we could, we could sort of, uh, this is an interesting question, right? We could look back at the scene where Willem Dafoe insinuates he's going in for a kiss. Yeah. Had Patterson given in, and if he, I'm not saying he should lay down and enjoy it like in a, in a, in a manner that is actually not enjoying it. Yeah. But if he had given in in that moment, if he had just let go, yeah. just let go fully, and was Willem Dafoe's sub sexually, uh, um, in life, uh, in, in workmanship, if he had just 100% given in and was happy in that moment, then it's hard to place a moral objective on or, or uh, a moral judgment on their situation. I, I would say that the only complaint I would make is that their relationship was born from manipulation and from uh, abusing a power dynamic. Sure, sure. Um, I think the film would maybe would make the argument that all relationships are power dynamic Yeah. and the level of abuse. Because again, Patterson doesn't, he doesn't make it at the end, spoilers. He's eaten yeah. by seagulls. So like, there is no justice for him in that manner. Yeah. He just shifts the power dynamic to where now he's in charge. He's abusive until eventually he just kills him. Yeah. And, and again, we know we mentioned that cycle of abuse. Um, but yeah, if they were to at least, you know, allow for some truth, quote unquote, to their relationship, um, if he were to allow himself to uh feel something for Willem right. Dafoe, then I think that it certainly would not have ended with, you know, uh one person um uh decapitated or at least, you know, with their with Stabbed, their head whatever yeah. happened. Yeah. Well, and also maybe he didn't ever feel that way. The other thing about interesting about that scene and what's so important is that he might genuinely have not had those same feelings for Defoe, but also has no method of explaining that yeah. In, a, in a manner that is um, would, would probably have been heard by Defoe, um, or even truthful to himself, right? Like he, this is where it's really interesting because people tend to jump to like, are you know, is this a homoerotic thing or not? But like, it's not so clean cut because yeah. enjoying the embrace of another person doesn't inherently mean sexuality, right? And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact it's very important to mention that a lot of it has to do with their isolation. Right. Um, it's situational. I, right. And, and a lot of it has to do with um, the desire for human connection in some way, shape, and form. Because despite the fact that they are uh, isolated together, there is still always going to be that feeling of, of, um, of loneliness, you know, um, of especially, you know, talking about those, those homosocial dynamics... Um, the distance that you put between someone because you don't want to open up to them necessarily. And as the film goes on, those, those, that distance uh, decreases. And I think that, um, you know, that's, again, you know, we talked about at the very beginning about how that's one of my favorite themes of the, of the film and then films in general is that idea of, of isolation um, slowly kind of messing with your overall uh, psyche. And well, one thing I wanted, I wanted to ask you, because this was just a, a slight takeaway. 
We know the scene where Patterson's asking about the the former. I don't know what his actual role title is, but the the his other helper. What mad he did? Yeah. Yeah. What if the other helper is the? What if what the story Defoe tells him is him? I think it's very likely, and I think that it's it's just as likely that um, that he again drove him mad. Yeah. Um, and I, I it's it's a uh, you know to use relationship terminology again it's that idea of you know he's just cycling through people essentially right um but um i think it's extremely likely that uh he is that person who went mad um and again the the example i keep thinking of when people are just demanding meaning mm-hmm. um and you know say what you will about the the man as a filmmaker i personally think that a lot of the hate that he gets is is just based on his exposure but uh christopher nolan um oh yeah everyone's in full anti-nolan camp now because of tenet yeah um but you know specifically the ambiguity in his films it's it's truly interesting to me that people are always like uh trying to find meaning to them right um or at least maybe not meaning but rather um how things work in them like uh again the, the thing that i keep thinking about is the ending of inception where the the uh top keeps spinning yeah the top keeps spinning and people like started to i remember shortly thereafter people were posting you know youtube breakdowns where they're like if you see here it starts to wobble Mm -hmm. and and you know my response was just just let it be just let it exist just you know don't answer it um it it's also it's funny as a as a fan of david lynch to the extent that i am um having people um trying to break down meaning or even saying you know like uh that his his that nolan's films are as, imbu- as ambiguous as they are, um, you know, Lynch has made it his point to never assign, you know, to never talk about what his films mean. Right. Um, and I think, again, that's the point, is is that ambiguity. Um, and also because you don't want to be, you don't want to have the ability to, like, like, my theory on watching The Lighthouse being sort of this allegory for man's relationship with the old gods yeah and its own place trying to ascend as a god itself which we which i i would make the argument exists as we develop technology right we destroyed our gods god is dead we killed him and we became god by making ai and robots and technology things that we control that are essentially life forms in and of itself from a certain perspective yeah like that's my meaning from it but it might it, it may not be anyone else's and why would you rob someone of their individualistic interpretation by giving them something so concrete? I think the problem is is that we're so used to Slock giving us a very definitive result, right? Yeah. The Marvel movies of the world, lovely as they may be, they're by the formula, right? Yeah. A plus B equals C. The good guy will win. Um, the people who will die are only the people whose contracts have run out. You right, know? and that's the difference between product and art is the yeah. ability to make you think deeper and interpret it yourself. That's why so many people misunderstood Fight Club yeah. or Joker or any number of those types of movies, especially when it deals with male dynamics. People yeah. have a really hard time because, I mean, look, men have a real hard time figuring out their own dynamics and their own place in the world, and and we can't seem to get it together, much less see it in art and try to have some sort of grasp of it. You know, we, we must simplify it because we haven't figured out in our own world how 
what our place is and what dynamics mean and what gender means. Right. I mean, we, as we noted earlier, fucking 4,000 4, acres of land is burning because someone did a gender reveal party. Yeah. You know, like, we're so obsessed and with this toxic idea of what all these things mean that we don't have an answer. And right. so we need something to give us a concrete answer. Otherwise, it forces us to have to explore many of our own unanswered questions of life. Right, and if we, we can even extend that, and I, and I personally would, to why things like mythology and, and religion and all of these aspects exist is because the idea of, especially you know, a, a religion that has an afterlife concept, the idea of, of nothing or not knowing is so frightening um, you know, on a deep primal level that we just reject it entirely and have to define something. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it really is, you know, from the idea of ambiguous art to more existential philosophical concepts, the idea of, of ambiguity is, is disconcerting or it's, it's uncomfortable to some. Uncomfortable um, would be the word I think that it really, really sinks in because it does generate, you can see people get very angry. Yeah. Like, for, I, like I saw on Twitter as a, a film writer that I follow was very, I guess she went to go see Tenet. Yeah. She was very angry, and she said, when did films stop having story? And it's like, well, I mean, like, Nolan's one of Nolan's big influences is 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that that has a traditional story in the way that we are used to. Right. In fact, uh, I think I may have mentioned this in, the previous, in one of the previous episodes that we, we've talked, um, but one of my favorite quotes on film is Terry Gilliam uh, talking about the difference between Spielberg and Kubrick. Yeah, and how um, he said when you walk out of a Spielberg film you say that was really good what do you want for dinner and then you walk out of a Kubrick film and you say that was really good and then you talk about it for the next hour trying right. to nail down its themes um, and I think that again you know I, I I'm not I'm not one of those people who says you know if you are enjoying something simply for enjoyment sake um that's that's lesser. In fact, I, I've gotten into some arguments with people about that. I, I also uh, am not solely in the camp of just let people enjoy things. I, I, I am primarily. That's that's my overall outlook. Is you know I'm just as likely to watch you know um, Gravity Falls. Uh, l- last night I watched uh, Bill and Ted. You know, right? And, and but I, I am also someone who espouses the value of challenging yourself um and i I think it's extremely important to allow for that ambiguity allow for that questioning allow for um uh truly exploring your your worldviews and philosophies and tastes um you know it's it's something that uh when i was i was staying with my dad for a while and i was showing him some movies and stuff and, and a lot of them have more ambiguous endings um i got him to watch maholland drive for example and he absolutely loved it, but it's not something that he seeks out. Right. Um, I like to I like to sort of summarize it as active leisure. Yeah. Like even in leisure, even in rest, which which I, you know, there's a, to me there's a difference between leisure and laying about. Yeah. Which is not to say that laying about can't be, you know, leisurely. Right. But it's it's actively like I I watched this podcast with Macaulay Culkin once. Yeah. And uh, I think it was actually on Rogan or something. And he asked him, like, what do you do? He's like, I'm a man of leisure. Yeah. He, he seeks out pleasure in life. Yeah. But he doesn't just sit around on his phone. He seeks pleasure in life. 
that is leisurely, right? And and to me, even art like a Bill and Ted, right, or the Lighthouse, and everything in between that, if you live your life, especially as just relating it to consuming art, as a matter of art being active leisure, yeah, things that actually bring you pleasure, and and part of that pleasure is complex thought processes and um, explorations, yeah, then it's really hard to go back to the stuff that spoon feeds you the ending that you already know is going to come and you're already there for the CGI. Yeah. That's, that's something that, um, I, I've realized again, I have no problems with, uh, enjoying a Marvel film. I, I typically enjoy them when I'm watching them, but it certainly is tainted. I guess you could say, um, I, I remember, you know, doing a marathon where I was watching like a Tarkovsky film and then, you know, uh, a Mikhail Hanukkah film and then tried to watch I don't know I think it was like a, a Avengers Infinity, for Infinity War and I was like that was fun I got very little out of it though um, right. and it's 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 fast food cinema um, hey, and conversely last uh, night before last our friend Jason was over and we were watching uh, pro wrestling so about as <laughs> about as uh, uh, spoon fed as it gets but but we were watching wrestling and we're talking philosophy ironically and we're talking about tarot cards and what have you and i made um, an analogy to the end of endgame as sort of what a tarot card means right because the the very end where captain america spoilers you've seen sure you've seen endgame everyone did yeah um the ending where captain america is like battered and beaten and his shield's broken and he's facing thanos and his army alone and all of his comrades are fallen and then from from his left ear, he hears the on your left. Yeah, on your yeah. left, and the portals open, and you realize that you've got this army behind you. And, and I was I was making the, the the connection between that and what a tarot card means, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of spirituality and divinity and all these things. So like you, even in that, even in like schlock, you can draw meaning from it. If again, you're attacking it from the position of of active leisure, right? right? You'll still be able to drive meaning from that. And so that's why the good mix of stuff like Lighthouse and Endgame or Bill and Ted or whatever is, is important. And that's why we should not get so stuck on clear-cut definitions being fed to us. Right. And we need these films like Lighthouse or Mother to a lesser degree, I would say, or, or The Witch, I would say, to a higher degree. Yeah. That make us think so that we think not just with these movies that are like more ambiguous, but with all art that we consume. Right. I mean that's that's one of those things where, you know, um, there there are a lot of things about my my film school experience that I look down on. You know, I, I remember I had a conversation with my with my best friend about how um, I asked him about me returning to school, and he was like, I don't view it as a necessity. In fact, I see it as a detriment to a lot of people. But I think you need to do it just for yourself. Um, and uh, anyway, I do absolutely love my analysis classes. Um, you know, it's, it's something where, especially, you know, I was in a uh, African-American film class. It was phenomenal. Um, and then I, the same professor taught that gender and sexuality and horror class that I mentioned. And there was a level of analysis to even, even schlock, even, you know, um, some just God awful films. But it was really interesting because he was talking about how, you know, people watch something like a, uh, one of the movies that he had us watch was like um, it was some pulpy uh, Christopher uh, 
Oh my gosh, I'm, Glover. No, uh, Reeves. Uh, no, um, no. Kane. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to. It, bad guy from. Um, oh no, it was it wasn't Christopher. Christoph it, Waltz. It was it was a uh, Vincent Price rather. Oh okay. It was some. Cheesy, oh, you're thinking of Christopher Lee. Yeah, I was thinking of Christopher Lee because we also talked about the Hammer horror films. Right. Um, but uh, we were talking about a, a Vincent Price film that was just pure schlock. But we were talking about how it has these ingrained concepts um, that really, when you start to, to look further into it, you know, um, the there's a scene where he dresses up as a uh, as a hairstylist and puts on an effeminate uh, accent and voice um, and commits a horrible act of violence. Mm. And he was saying, you know, why is it that for for since the be- beginning of film, really? the effeminate character like all those disney villains yes um they are villainized in this way mm-hmm. and and you know he often he was talking about even uh in hitchcock films and stuff how uh the idea of the effeminate foreigner um is is a recurring concept like peter lorry and uh the man who knew too much right um it's it's this recurring concept of it's different it's scary and you know we don't know how to process it exactly um, well, man, if that isn't a metaphor for movies like this, then I don't know what is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're 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 different. They're scary. You don't know how to process it, and as a result, I think people overlook something that really helps enrich the, the total of their life. So, yeah. um, we do Tusk ratings here, okay? Because Tusk is an amazing movie. But I have not seen. I think I mentioned this before. I have not seen. Tusk. Okay, we gotta watch Tusk. We're gonna have a Tusk viewing night. Yeah. And then we're doing like a roundtable discussion on it. But I know the storyline, and it that kind of body horror is so it's upsetting to me. Bizarre. Yeah. It's bizarre. Wonderfully bizarre. But how many uh, scale of zero to five? How many Tusk would you give the Lighthouse? Oh, five. It's it's one of my favorite films now. Yeah, it's great. I I, I really I loved the witch. Yeah. In a lot of ways, for a lot of reasons. And I think that I love. I, I walked away from watching the lighthouse, saying I think I like this more. Now, granted, I'm like I'm like an ocean sea guy. Yeah. But um, well, and you love the the classic monster movies as well, I, I, and this yes. has a lot of those. I mean, yes. Uh, one thing about the witch is you know love that movie really really do, um, but there's only a couple of shots in it that I would call remarkable when it comes down to its cinematography. Sure. Um, but this movie, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing. There's there's one shot in particular where they're they're doing a, a crane shot in the stairway, mm. um, and it's just pulling up and right, pulling right, up right. and pulling up, and it's you know, this spiraling staircase around them is really dizzying, and it's mm-hmm. just phenomenal. But anyway, yeah, um, well, and it's even even like that, it's like something like that symbolizes sort of the dizzying feeling. Oh, that falling into an abyss. You yeah, know? you're crossing it when you cross the abyss. This sort of disillusion and disorientation of self. Yeah. Right, and if at the top of this lighthouse is whatever this light represents, let's just call it divinity, then that path upwards, up that staircase, would be dis- disorienting and disillusioning and destructive. Um, I want to I say, you know, um, uh, as sort of a uh, last reference to this, the influence of this film, if you like this movie and you want something that's also kind of challenging and also kind of like a classic art house film, uh, Hour of the Wolf by Ingmar mm. Bergman okay, yeah. is a great... Uh, great movie that again deals with the ideas of isolation it's about uh, a couple on an island um in their cabin and essentially they are just the the husband and and i did take some inspiration from this Uh uh-huh um but the the husband starts to kind of lose his grips a little bit 
and there's this weird community on the island that you don't know how real they are. But it's it's really good, and I think that okay. you know, people should watch it and uh, check it out. For All sure. right, well, check that movie out. Check out The Lighthouse. Yes. We both think it's excellent. Um, What's be- your Tusser rating, by the way? Uh, five. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing movie. But, but go into the movie willing to pay attention. If you're not in that headspace, save it for another day because it is certainly a movie that if the more you give to it, the more it will give back to you. Yeah. Um, so we launched a few weeks back a tournament to determine which is the best witch movie of all time. Okay. And I have a couple, I have some tallying. I don't know if you've ever seen these. This was like one of our lower sort of scored uh, contests. It was uh, Bell Book and Candle Mm-mm. versus Black Sunday. I've, I've actually not seen either. I, I've been wanting to see Black Sunday for a long time. I'm well, not familiar with the... In fairness, we tried to watch Bell, Book, and Candle, and we couldn't find it on any streaming service. Yeah. So I apologize if people wanted to watch it and couldn't. Um, but 25 to 13, Black Sunday advances. Yeah. So it's uh, moving on to the second round of this witch tournament. And this week, we have two new movies. We're basically down to the last, last two weeks of round one. So this week, it's going to be Eve's Bayou. Which okay. is a movie from the '90s with Angela Bassett, and The Love Witch, which came out just a just a few years ago that yeah. I actually got to see in theaters at the New Beverly uh, Theater. I hear really good things about um, the New Beverly or the Love Witch. Uh, Love Witch, I, I love the New Beverly. But, yeah, um, it's really good. It's really good. It's a it's a sort of satirical take on. It's actually it's interesting. I now in retrospect, I wish it would have matched up with um, Bell Bell Book and Candle. But when you see it, you'll realize. That it's, it it does a lot. It's it's a lot of satire about the way black widows were portrayed in movies and women in general are portrayed in movies and yeah. uh, sort of a, I get it's sort of modern but not modern like retro modern if that makes yeah. sense portrayal of like what what the the term witch and how it's applied to women in particular. So it's very very good. Um, Eve Bayou is really good as well. Make sure to vote on our Grindhouse Podcast Instagram stories. I will post them every week in the stories. Just click one or the other. Or you can go to the Slashers apps, the Slasher app Instagram, and they'll post it today. Uh, and you can post underneath their post all week. And then at the end of the week, next week, we'll tie those up and see who advances. And then before you know it, we'll be moving into our second round. So uh, thank you, guys. We love love having you guys participate and be a part of it. And, and this sort of interactive stuff is really fun. Have you seen either Eve's by you? I know you haven't seen The Love Witch. Um, I have not. I actually, uh, Eve's Bayou in particular, recently, uh, I have been told by several people to watch it, and um, they just put it on some streaming service, from what okay. I understand. We'll find um, it out. And, and Love Witch, I hear great things about. Yeah, we might have to have another movie night with this as well, because yeah. uh, they're fun movies. They're fun movies. So, so participate. Let us know which one you like the best. Let us know which one is going to be moving on to the next round. And uh, with that, we have one audience question, if you'd like to answer that with me. I would love to. Questions from the Crypt. The Boingo asks, are any new movies currently being filmed in the US? And if not, are they holding off on release of films until cinemas open again? Um, yeah, stuff's filming. Stuff's filming right now. It's tricky, though, because, I mean, I just got back from a set, and obviously there's a lot I can't say, but it's... A challenging time to film right now. I mean, I'm sure from your perspective, you just moved to Los Angeles. It's you're, rough. You're looking to get into the film industry. Yeah. I don't know if any filming has started in LA. I mean, I see ads all the time, but mostly reality, like smaller stuff. Yeah. Um, I I feel like things are filming. 
and or about to start filming. Yeah. Um, again, we, we were talking off air that there is just a, a certain level of stop down that you can do. And we've probably passed that expiration for better or worse, probably worse. And the, the, the gears are just, it's like those old movies. Like, um, you watch where they have to like stop a mechanism and they stick like a, a crowbar in between the gears and it temporarily stops it. Yeah. Right. Well now the, the, the crowbar is snapped and the gears are turning again. And, um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's something, I mean, there's been like movie releases that have been postponed. Yeah. You know, except for Chris Nolan, he's going to release Tenet one way or another. Yeah. But um, what's been your perspective in terms of being someone looking for work? Like, have you found much as filming right now? Um, not much. There are some things that um, I, I, I've noticed that they're trying to keep it to skeleton crews either way, even on the small, uh, even even on the few things that I have seen. Um, it, it was probably a terrible time to to move to Los Angeles. Uh, to look for work, um, but it's it's something that I, I have seen some small things. I, I also have been keeping up with the uh, production dates discussed on online, and um, I know that they were talking about basically trying to open up the industry end of September, um, beginning of October, something along those lines. They were like, we're we're trying to get back to it. Um, Again, for better or for worse. And it doesn't um, help that Patterson reportedly got COVID while filming the Batman in England. Yeah. I, I actually, I had a conversation with someone today. Um, you know, I my, half of my family lives in the UK. And uh, uh, there's this idea that everyone is handling it um, much better than we are. But that may be true, but that doesn't mean they're handling it well. And in, in the UK specifically, they are apparently not doing as good of a job as, uh, as other places. But, um, yeah, I think that, that, that announcement that, that Pattinson got it, um, is probably going to be detrimental to the reopening process. Um, because such a high profile figure getting, uh, COVID is, is potentially terrifying to people. And, and the reality of it is, is even though Los Angeles is being sort of trepidate, has trepidation about reopening, um, there were a lot of productions going on in Georgia while I was there. Yeah. You know, which is funny that that's the place. I mean, I know why, because it's an incentive state and so many things were being filmed there anyway, but it just seems strange that like a hotbed for COVID is where people are going to, to film. Yeah. You know, but really it just comes down to like the laws are more lax there. Yeah. But that's why the COVID is higher there as well. I mean, at one point I did some math and uh, in terms of like per capita active, um, active cases they're like double what los angeles what, what california is yeah um so the reality of it is is some people will stop till the new year if they can but i think most places are are looking to move forward one way or another most filming is looking to move forward so i guess come this time next year there should be a whole slate of new films yeah coming out and maybe maybe by then we will have gotten this under control to some degree and theaters will be open in a safe manner not like they are now and we'll be able to enjoy some of these things. Yeah, I, I think that um, that's that's absolutely the case that we just cannot continue with um, things being shut down completely because there's there's so little assistance, you know. Right. Um, so I mean, the movie industry, the entertainment industry, all of these industries just being shut down has just been devastating to um, to people working in those industries, and so. I think we're going to be seeing stuff opening up again for better or for worse. Yeah. 
So thank you, David, for coming on the show again. Uh, I think this was really, really fun to break down with you. Um, uh, your perspective was great. I hope people, hope it inspires people to go out and watch not only The Lighthouse, but your short, The Body, um, if it's available anywhere, uh, and movies that make you think a little bit more. I 100% agree. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, man. And, and thank you guys for listening and participating in our witch tournament and sending in your questions. We, we love the interaction, and we do this for you. So until next time, adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Never Kill a Seabird Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify.